I'm Carl Helwick from the Department of Physics, and I'm the host this morning of Anna Furst, who is our guest to give the lecture this morning. Uh, Anna will be back again at 4 o'clock in the Science Hall 106. For those of you who have been tantalized by her discussion this morning, uh, and uh, come and listen to her again. There will be a follow-up, question and answers, and things like that at 4 o'clock in Science Hall 106. I promised Anna that I will give very brief introduction. She has been at St. Bonaventure for five years. I knew her before then. Uh, I have traveled many miles earlier on to listen to her talk once, and it was worth every mile. Uh, her interests are as a theologian in embodied artificial intelligence and in human beings and what the human is. Uh, her interest as a computer scientist is correspondingly in this aspect of artificial intelligence. She has a theological degree from Bochum in Germany and computer science and philosophy degrees from Bonn. Anna, would you like to come in up here and knock us down? Thank you, Carl. Good to see you again. We have met quite a lot of times on various religious and science events. So, and I've actually been here eight years ago, something like that, so it's good to be back. And um, what I'm talking today about is about a new understanding of personhood based on embodied AI and biblical wisdom. As a theologian and a computer scientist, be aware I do not try to merge the two disciplines. Quite the contrary, I find it incredibly boring Try to make those two things fit. Um, what I do instead, I'm standing here in front of you on various hats, and I switch. So sometimes I'm here as a pastor, sometimes as the theological academic, sometimes as the engineer who built robots, sometimes as the AI researcher. Bear with me, and at the end, I hope it will all make sense. Um, when we talk about embodied AI, of course we talk about robots. And most of us are familiar with those two critters, or three critters, uh, Commander Data of the Enterprise and R2-D2 and 3CPO from Star Wars. And uh, I want to already point out that what is interesting when we look at 3CPO and R2-D2, that even though 3CPO speaks like us, looks like us as a humanoid robot, that most of us are actually much rather in love with R2-D2. Because even though it speaks completely ununderstandable, makes these sounds and stuff like that, it is so endearing because it is emotional. And when we look at those two robots, we get already a hint as to what it means to be human. And that is that it is, does not matter on speech and language and rational thought, but it depends on empathy. If we can actually feel what the other one feels. And that is what my talk is basically about. Now, at MIT, I've been involved in building real robots, not fictional robots, so this is COG. And this is Kismet, just to make you aware that we have actually built humanoid, smart, intelligent social robots um, that are out there that are real and on which my research is built. So we have actually left the realm of science fiction and are now in the real world. Embodied AI assumes its understanding of intelligence on three basic assumptions that have been proven all over. First of all, intelligence is the capability to survive and can as such be found in many, many species, not just in the human species. An ant is smart, a horse is smart, a cockroach is smart, and humans are pretty smart too, because we all are able to survive. 
Secondly, intelligence is embodied. Our body is the tool in which intelligence is processed. Yes, I know that we usually think of our intelligence as located in the brain. That is actually not true. We know by now that intelligence is distributed throughout the body. And a very good example for that is what we call evolutionary epistemology. Our organs, our sensory perception that has been evolved throughout evolution enables us to see certain things, but also keeps us away from sensing certain other things. Ultraviolet, infrared, we can't see it. And so we think it isn't real. Well, in fact, it is very real, but just our sensory perception does not allow us to see it. And actually, humans are pretty lousy compared to most other animals in perceiving things. I mean, every dog has a better nose than us, you know, stuff like that. The final assumption that we have in embodied AI about intelligence is that our intelligence is social. We are incredibly weak. Most animals are stronger than us, better than us in many ways. The way why we survive is because we work together intentionally to shape our environment in order to survive. And when you look at mechanisms of human intelligence as those mechanisms that new babies are either born with or develop very early on, you see it's not the rational reasoning that is developed, but it's actually much more social skills. We, for instance, have a special mechanism in our brain that is just dedicated to recognize faces and to distinguish faces from non-faces in an environment. We have certain voice melodies, recognition of voice melodies that are inbuilt. I mean, you talk to your dog and you say, no, prohibitional sound. Every dog will understand it, every horse will understand it. There are certain inbuilt sounds that are universal, and so we actually think, because they are mammalian universals, they are built in. Finally, they're very important, this baby scheme. Human babies are born way too early. It has something to do with the birth canals, the small in our brain growing and stuff like that. So babies actually have to be born long before they are ready to be born, and this is why they need a lot of help. Now, if you have ever interacted with a newborn infant, it's not particularly pleasant. They wake you up at night, they cry, they are noisy, they smell, and you don't get anything out of it. So, you know, why do we still take care of those really annoying infants? Well, we do it because built into our system is what we call a baby scheme. We react to a scheme that is a big round face and big eyes and sucky mouth, a small body. We can't help. We just react and look at E.T. and look at the gremlins and other critters. Hollywood knows that very well and uses that baby scheme to attract us. Very powerful, powerful mechanism built into us. Now, the reason why that is so is that a newborn baby is basically really doesn't have any capabilities, but tell that to the parents. I mean, they are sure that baby recognizes them. It doesn't. They are sure that the baby's cries mean something. It doesn't. But we are very good at projecting into the infant hunger, thirst, desire, intentionality, all those things. And just because we project it into the infant and treat the infant accordingly, the infant will actually develop those capabilities. It's a very powerful developmental circle that has been set up in the human system. And um, what is also learned, one of the prized possessions of human beings, self-consciousness, self-awareness, um, it actually turns out that that is learned too. Before the age of 36 months, human infants are not capable of putting themselves into someone else's shoes because they do not have the capability of distinguishing between I and you. They do not have the I-thou capability. This is learned. It's learned in human interaction. To go over a few more correlation between facial expressions and emotions, baby smiles doesn't mean a thing. 
But however, after a while, it learns that whenever it smiles, you know, its caregivers are very happy, so it kind of learns to associate and correlate this kind of muscle movement with happiness around it. And so after a while, those two experiences are so closely linked that if you now, as grown-ups, force yourself to go to a party when you're really not in a mood, and you stand there and force yourself to smile, that after a while, you actually feel better. Okay, so there is a very strong correlation between feeling and facial expression that becomes stronger the older we get. We have mirror cells, cells that fire in our, in our motor cortex exactly the same way like they fire in someone who actually does a certain action, so, which is seen, seen to be a mechanism for empathy. So in fact, when we observe someone, they have actually noticed that in, in chimpanzees. So a chimpanzee climbs a tree, another one sits passively and observes the chimp climbing a tree. Their cells in the motor cortex fire the same way. So that seems to be the mechanism for empathy, why we can actually feel what someone else feels. Um, there is external scaffolding. We always assume that our brain is this sort of hard drive that stores information like a computer does, all wrong. Um, in fact, our brain builds scaffolds through association with our environment. Have you ever noticed when you were on a vacation on a completely different environment that you couldn't even remember the simplest phone numbers? That's external scaffolding. It took me a while that whenever I came home visiting my folks in Germany, I could not remember the English numbers. I was dialing while I was in the America all the time. Reason was I stored them or I, I, I remembered the sound they were making when I was speaking the numbers in English. And then I was back in a German-speaking environment and I couldn't remember the numbers anymore. That's a classical example for external scaffolding. So what you can see, I mean, this is very, in a nutshell, insights about how human intelligence works that has been covered throughout the last 20 years and has really made us realize what intelligence is not, even though that is usually what we think of intelligence. Intelligence is not individual because the social mechanisms, those I pointed out here, are the core of any form of intelligence. What we really have to change here is our traditional ontology. Instead of saying something is, we have to really say something is only in relation. Um, Mind-body dualism completely out. Yes, we tend to believe it's still true. It really isn't. Because the body is the means for intelligence and our survival is its end. We also have been always thinking about the superiority of rationality. Not true. Um, chess really can be seen as a byproduct, and I just remind you once again of R2D2 and 3CPO, R2D2 the much more charming one, even though it's certainly not rational, because we can empathize with it better. And finally, there's this whole theory of the emotion-thought dualism, the idea of the thoughtless, objective thought. We have actually known now through research by um, um, Antonio Damasio and others, when the frontal lobes in the brain in which emotions are processed are damaged, people cannot do rational thought anymore. So it seems also clear from the way our brain works that emotions are a prerequisite for rational thought. So that was, in a nutshell, the science part. Now I'm switching sides, and now I'm, I'm kind of uh, put on the head of the theologian. What is the human being according to the Bible? We get a glimpse in the very first creation story where it is said that human beings are created in the image of God. Now, this gift of the image of God is completely unconditional, and it assigns each human being an intrinsic value. 
What it is also often misunderstood, though, is that it is clear according to the biblical creation stories that human beings, like all other animals, depend on God-given food and God-given water. That means we are not distinct from any other creator except through our faith-based belief that God has chosen us as partners. That means the image of God, the concept of the image of God, is a relational concept. Um, it also comes with certain other gifts. Uh, Phil Hefner from Zygon calls it, we are created co-creators. We have the gift of creativity. Whenever we are creative, whenever we are creative as engineers, as scientists, as, as thinkers, we participate in God's given creativity. And so many people, especially in the Jewish tradition, have often pointed out that any form of creativity is a form of service. Um, when we look at the Hebrew, we discover something very important and very, very often overlooked. Um, the term image means in, in Hebrew is the, what you find in the Hebrew Bible is the term salem, which means figurine and also representation of power. Um, what that really means, translated, applied, is we are all images of God. God is in everyone. And when you look now from that perspective onto the first commandment, you shall not make an image. Why should you not make an image? Well, because each one of us is an image. If you want to look into the face of God, I look into your face, into your face, into your face. That's where I find God. God is in each one of us. However, if we make really a, a figurine outside of human beings, we look at that figurine and are not able to recognize God in each other. Extremely powerful concept, what I think. This concept, however, which is already shows to a very embodied sense of the God-human relationship, is supported by a whole bunch of other constructs. There is, for instance, the term nephesh. Nefesh is usually translated with soul. However, it is not the concept of a disembodied soul as we are used to it from Platonic thought. Nefesh emerges in the real embodied interactions of humans and God, of God and Israel, to be very precise. In the Hebrew scriptures, there is no life after death. The life that is best lived is one in health and safety. Because that is what chaim, life, means. It leave, does not mean an abstract form of life. It means safety and health. And when you have safety and health, then you are participate in nefesh, in soul, in the healthy relationship between God and Israel. Um, we have other terms that, that, that kind of support this whole very embodied and social understanding of what it means to be human according to the Bible. Lev means heart. It also means reason and conscience. Betan means stomach. It also means feeling. My personal favorite is rechem. Rechem is a term for uterus. In the Bible, this term, however, is mostly used to express the empathy God has for us. And finally, there is kabet, which literally means the heavy one, which is the liver, but also the inner sheet of emotions. And if you don't believe me, let's just look at some very, very well-known Bible verses and see how that works. Proverbs 20, 27, you all know the verse, the human spirit is the lamp of God searching every innermost path. What it actually says there is the human spirit is God's lamp searching into the bedchamber of the valley. You all know that verse, I keep God always before me because God is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices, my body also rests secure. Now let's look at what it really says. I keep God always before me. God is on my right hand. I will not be moved. My heart is happy. My liver rejoices. Yes, my body is secure. 
In other words, there is no opposition between mind and body and soul and body. Everything is one. And everything is Salem. Remember a figurine, an image of God. And as such, happy and safe. Finally, my personal favorite, we know it as prove me God and try me, test my heart and mind. No, it is prove me God and try me, ennoble my kidneys and my heart. Um, what we can see of this, even though we do not find it in the King James or other translations, is for the Hebrew people, for the rabbis who put the Hebrew scriptures together, the body as a whole was an expression of God's love, and you lived your relationship with God, with your whole body, and with your whole body participating in community. For the Bible, there was not the I-God relationship. It was always the we-God relationship. It was not the I sit alone in my chamber and pray to God. No, it was we all together sit together and pray and are committed to our community and hence interact with God. So, what actually turns out to be, which I, when I was at MIT, was absolutely amazed, that in the end we can actually compare cutting-edge artificial intelligence research and the wisdom of the Hebrew scriptures. Yes, artificial intelligence assumes a reductionist anthropology. What I mean with that is when we try to build robots that are like us, we have to assume that we are nothing but meat machines. Otherwise, we can't build them, right? I mean, we have to assume that everything we are can be rebuilt with mechanistic tools. And we do, and that works fine. Um, we also assume that humans have functions like every other animal, and if you might remember, here were a lot of those mechanisms and functions I have mentioned. And in the, in, the, in the robots that I've been building that I will show videos in the afternoon of, we have actually managed to build most of those mechanisms in. So Kismet is actually capable of doing most of those things. Um, uh, the Hebrew scriptures obviously assume an intrinsic value of humans in, in the community. But what is very important here, and I think this is something extremely important to remember, the Hebrew scriptures agree with AI on the point that humans are not distinct from other animals in any empirical fashion. According to the Bible, the only thing that distinguishes us from other, hum from other animals is that we are in relationship with God, which is a non-empirical, a faith-based statement. And then, when we have seen that there is already a point of correlation, then we actually see something more surprising, that both base their anthropologies on the same four principles. Embodiment, community, emotionality, and finally, that what I call the assignment and projection of personhood. Now, what is personhood? Personhood is if I assign you value, if I say you are, I am, and we are in a relationship. That is personhood. Personhood is an assignment. Now, in the Hebrew scripture, this assignment is given to God by, by God through the image of God, through the promise of the image of God, through the promise of affirmation. In AI, based on a very empirical sort of approach, this assignment is given through the caregivers that give that to their infant in the first two or three years of development before the infant learns to say, I and you. In the one, we have a religious concept and a religious assignment of personhood. In the other case, we have a developmental assignment of personhood. But nonetheless, both are very comparable because in both cases, personhood does not depend on any capability we have. It does not depend on any empirical feature we had. It's a purely and solely relational concept. 
However, I mean, so far we have been all talking about, oh, how wonderful humans are, how communal we are, and how good we are loving each other, and yada, 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 and looking at the world, we all know it's not true. And so, in fact, science has actually told us very clearly that there are profound limits to our bonding with other people. There is, first of all, the problem of physicality. And again, there is a nice correlate with the Bible. Jesus said, where two or three are together in my name, um, I will be among them. He certainly did not mean a chat room on the internet. And the reason why he did not mean the chat room is because we are not there physically. Humans need physical togetherness in, off, in, off, in, 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 after, in order to bond. You know, I told you earlier about those mechanisms, those empathy cells, those mirror cells, they only work in direct physical contact. So it seems that humans are so embodied that in order to interact with other human beings, we need the bodily community, we need the shared physical space. If we do not have that shared physical space, we are often not incapable to bond. Let me give you an example. You see an earthquake in China, 100,000 people die, and beside you lies your dog suffering of a stomach ache. You will care more for your dog suffering of the stomach ache than of those 100,000 people dying in China. Why? Because you share with your dog the physical space and the community. Of course, you can make your failed self think about, oh, how horrible it is. But your physical system does not support this empathy. Another thing, very interesting, very especially in our global world, it seems that our capability to assign personhood to people is actually limited to approximately 150 people. You probably all know this, the, the same, you all had the experience. You go into a family restaurant, Friendly's or Friday's or you know what I'm talking about, the one where the waitress wear uniforms, and you get a waitress comes to your table, hi, I'm Kathy, what can I get you to drink? Yeah, you know the story. So chances are she comes back, you order your food and everything is fine. But how about when you sit there together and you want to order a second beer? And then your whole table starts, is that Kathy, is that Kathy, is that Kathy, and no one recognized her. Ever been in that situation? I mean, probably we all have. Point is that we do not, even if Kathy introduces herself with her name and seems to be friendly, we do not recognize her as person. It would be way too stressful to assign personhood to every acquaintance we make, and we probably will never see again. We reserve to assign personhood, which is a very, very complex thing to do to our only closest people. And so our brain is actually incapable of assigning it to more than 150 people at once. And so to all the other rest, we give labels, waiter, waitress, professor, non-professor, um, worker, uh, uh, rich, poor, whatever, old, young, you know, whatever, something that we can lump together you know, in a big bunch and don't have to worry about individuals anymore. That's the way our brain works. And there's a lot and lots and lots of empirical research for those who are, if you are interested, I will actually present in the afternoon a couple of videos that show that very nicely. The final thing is what might also surprise you is humans do not have a built-in mechanism that makes us recognize other human beings. We don't. We bond with everything that is around us and interacts with us and anthropomorphize but we do not automatically re react to every human being. Oh, that's a human being, that's like us, let's bond. Doesn't happen, it's not built in. We do not have such a mechanism. And uh, this is kind of something that might come to a shock as you, because most languages, including my own German as well as English, use actually the term personhood and human interchangeably. Believe me, they aren't. And they are especially not when we look at those negative examples. In my country, in Nazi Germany, um, it was very easy for the German Christians 
to suddenly give their friends, neighbors, relatives the label Jew and denied them personhood. They knew that they were humans because they're still doing experiments with them and they were still kind of doing procreation stuff with them when they happened to be blonde and blue-eyed, but they definitely denied them personhood. When Serbs raped systematically Croatian women in order to create more Serbs, they certainly acknowledged that the Croatian women they were raping were human beings, otherwise they would not have been able to procreate with them. But they clearly denied them any form of personhood. So, unfortunately, there are a lot of those negative cases that we have to point out that make it obvious that humans do not automatically assign personhood to every human being they come across. We're incredibly good, unfortunately, in denying other human beings the value of personhood. And we justify it, and now I come to my last point on the slide, we justify it with stories of superiority. The Bible starts with one, right? Israel is special, and everyone who is outside of Israel is not special. Paul, the genius of Paul, enabled them to actually create, to open up Christianity also for the pagans and not just for the Jews, right? But, I mean, I've showed my students images of a black Jesus on the cross, and they say, but Jesus was white. He wasn't, obviously. I mean, I always tell them he probably looked more like Osama bin Laden than like, um, you know, this blonde, blue-eyed kind of guy. But uh, they are really shocked. So we actually constantly create these stories of exclusivity. And we create these categories of us and them. We create the categories of outsider and insider. We are very, very, very good at that. Because remember, we live in a global environment. We constantly interact with much more than 150 people. But that is where our evolutionary history lies. Little tribal cave communities of not more than 130, 140 people. That's long gone. And so we have to find other mechanisms to deal with this limit that our very physical brain gives us, this 150 number. And so we do it by creating stories. Oh, I don't have to care for you because you're black. I don't have to care for you because you're 80. I don't have to care for you because you're five, right? You're very, very good in that. And of course, all those stories are just justification for something that is horrible, that is rejective. And yet, it's the only way for us to cope with meeting so many people at once. So what is the lesson we can learn here from AI both and AI and the Bible? Now, the scientific dimension is pretty clear that what I've been talking about when I said about AI. Intelligence is social, intelligence is embodied, intelligence is interactive. That means we assign personhood to one another. We also deny personhood to one another. Um, we assign readily personhood to non-human critters and we readily treat human beings as non-persons. That's the scientific dimension. That's just a fact. That's how our system works. But there's also the ethical dimension. If we are committed to a religious framework, as it is, for instance, presented in the Hebrew scriptures, then we can say there is an ethical dimension. And that ethical dimension says God assigns personhood and intrinsic value to everyone. So if even no human being is capable to treat you as a person, you, at least according to that statement, still are one, because God has given it to you. Point is, that is a statement of faith and not an empirical property. So what is the commonality between them again, between the Hebrew scriptures on the one hand and AI on the other hand? There is no empirical basis for personhood. Personhood cannot be earned. You don't have to have certain capabilities in order to be a person. Personhood is an unconditional assignment, a statement about who you are. And therefore, both AI and 
the Hebrew scripture encourage us that this personhood is also a gift we are free to give to others. And don't worry about it if you're not always capable. Hey, you are a body, and that body is limited to certain very clear things. You cannot do everything. But knowing that, knowing the physical limitations and taking them serious, makes it very easy to say, okay, now I know my bonds, and within these limits, within these limits my body assigns to me, I can do my best to actually assign personal to as many people as possible. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Anna. Uh, as I said, knock us down, and you did. Uh, I am told that Anna will be happy to talk with anybody up here who wants to speak with her afterwards. We actually also have a room reserved across the Way 112 if they, somebody kicks us out of the chapel here, but Anna will be available uh, until about sometime before 11. You're all dismissed. Thank you so much.